0: I studied economics in college when I was young and I learned there about a man named Ibn Khaldun who lived 1,200 years ago in Egypt. And 1,200 years ago he said in the beginning of the empire the rates were low, the tax rates were low, but the revenue was great. He said in the end of the empire, when the empire was collapsing, the rates were great and the revenue was low. A Chill Books Original Preface to Al-Makadimah, The Introduction, by Ibn Khaldun Invocation In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, pray, O God, for our Lord Muhammad and his family and the men around him. The servant of God who needs the mercy of God who is so rich in his kindness, Abd rahman b. Muhammad b. Khaldun al-Hadrami God give him success. Says, Praised be God! He is powerful and mighty, in his hand, he holds royal authority and kingship. His are the most beautiful names and attributes, his knowledge is such that nothing, be it revealed in secret whispering or, even, left unsaid remains strange to Him. His power is such that nothing in heaven and upon earth is too much for Him or escapes Him. He created us from the earth as living, breathing creatures. He made us to settle on it as races and nations. From it, He provided sustenance and provisions for us. The wombs of our mothers and houses are our abode. Sustenance and food keep us alive. Time wears us out. Our lives' final terms, the dates of which have been fixed for us in the Book of destiny, claim us, but he lasts and persists, he is the living one who does not die. Prayer and blessings upon our Lord and Master, Muhammad, the Arab prophet, whom Torah and gospel have mentioned and described, him for whose birth the world that is was, already, in labor before Sundays were following upon Saturdays in regular sequence and before Saturn and Behemoth had become separated, him to whose truthfulness pigeon and spider bore witness. Prayer and blessings, Also upon his family and the men around him, who by being his companions and followers gained wide influence and fame, and who by supporting him found unity while their enemies were weakened through dispersion. Pray, O God, for him and them, for as long as Islam shall continue to enjoy its lucky fortune and the frayed rope of unbelief shall remain cut. Give manifold blessings to him and them. Forward History is a discipline widely cultivated among nations and races, it is eagerly sought after, the men in the street, the ordinary people, aspire to know it, kings and leaders vie for it, both the learned and the ignorant are able to understand it, for on the surface history is no more than information about political events, dynasties, and occurrences of the remote past, elegantly presented and spiced with proverbs. It serves to entertain large, crowded gatherings and brings to us an understanding of human affairs. It shows, how changing conditions affected, human affairs, how certain dynasties came to occupy an ever wider space in the world, and how they settled the earth until they heard the call and their time was up. The inner meaning of history, on the other hand, involves speculation and an attempt to get at the truth, subtle explanation of the causes and origins of existing things, and deep knowledge of the how and why of events. History, therefore, is firmly rooted in philosophy. It deserves to be accounted a branch of philosophy. The outstanding Muslim historians made exhaustive collections of historical events and wrote them down in book form, but, then, persons who had no right to occupy themselves with history introduced into those books untrue gossip which they had thought up or freely invented, as well as false, discredited reports which they had made up or embellished. Many of their successors followed in their steps and passed that information on to us as they had heard it. They did not look for, or pay any attention to, the causes of events and conditions, nor did they eliminate or reject nonsensical stories. Little effort is being made to get the truth. The critical eye, as a rule, is not sharp. Errors and unfounded assumptions are closely allied and familiar elements in historical information. Blind trust in tradition is an inherited trait in human beings. Occupation with the scholarly disciplines on the part of those who have no right is widespread, but the pasture of stupidity is unwholesome for mankind. No one can stand up against the authority of truth, and the evil of falsehood is to be fought with enlightening speculation. The reporter merely dictates and passes on the material. It takes critical insight to sort out the hidden truth, it takes knowledge to lay truth bare and polish it so that critical insight may be applied to it. Many systematic historical works have been composed, and the history of nations and dynasties in the world has been compiled and written down. But there are very few historians who have become so well known as to be recognized as authorities, and who have replaced the products of their predecessors by their own works. They can almost be counted on the fingers of the hands They are hardly more numerous than the vowels in grammatical constructions, which are just three. There are, for instance, Ibn Ishaq, at Tabari, Ibn al Kalbi, Muhammad b. Umar al Wajidi, Saif b. Umar al Asadi, al Masudi, and other famous historians, who are distinguished from the general run of historians. It is well known to competent persons and reliable experts that the works of al-Masudi and al-Wakidi are suspect and objectionable in certain respects. However, their works have been distinguished by universal acceptance of the information they contain and by adoption of their methods and their presentation of material. The discerning critic is his own judge as to which part of their material he finds spurious, and which he gives credence to. Civilization, in its, different, conditions, contains, different, elements to which historical information may be related and with which reports and historical materials may be checked. Most of the histories by these authors cover everything because of the universal geographical extension of the two earliest Islamic dynasties and because of the very wide selection of sources of which they did or did not make use. Some of these authors, such as al-Masidi and historians of his type, gave an exhaustive history of the pre-Islamic dynasties and nations and of other pre-Islamic, affairs in general. Some later historians, on the other hand, showed a tendency toward greater restriction, hesitating to be so general and comprehensive. They brought together the happenings of their own period and gave exhaustive historical information about their own part of the world. They restricted themselves to the history of their own dynasties and cities. This was done by Ibn Hayyan, the historian of Spain and the Spanish Umayyads, and by Ibn al-Rakaykh, The historian of Ifrigia and the dynasty in Kairouan, Al Kairawan. The later historians were all tradition bound and dull of nature and intelligence, or, at any rate, did not try not to be dull, they merely copied the older historians and followed their example. They disregarded the changes in conditions and in the customs of nations and races that the passing of time had brought about. Thus, They presented historical information about dynasties and stories of events from the early period as mere forms without substance, blades without scabbards, as knowledge that must be considered ignorance, because it is not known what of it is extraneous and what is genuine. Their information, concerns happenings the origins of which are not known, it concerns species the genera of which are not taken into consideration, and whose, specific, differences are not verified. With the information they set down they merely repeated historical material which is, in any case, widely known, and followed the earlier historians who worked on it. They neglected the importance of change over the generations in their treatment of the historical material, because they had no one who could interpret it for them. Their works, therefore, give no explanation for it. When they then turn to the description of a particular dynasty, they report the historical information about it, mechanically, and take care to preserve it as it had been passed on down to them, be it imaginary or true. They do not turn to the beginning of the dynasty, nor do they tell why it unfurled its banner and was able to give prominence to its emblem, or what caused it to come to a stop when it had reached its term. The student, thus, has still to search for the beginnings of conditions and for the principles of, organization of the various dynasties. He must, himself, Investigate why the various dynasties brought pressures to bear upon each other and why they succeeded each other. He must search for a convincing explanation of the elements that made for mutual separation or contact among the dynasties. All this will be dealt with in the introduction to this work. Other historians, then, came with too brief a presentation of history. They went to the extreme of being satisfied with the names of kings, without any genealogical or historical information and with only a numerical indication of the length of reins. This was done by Ibn Rashik in the Mizan Olimol, and by those lost sheep who followed his method. No credence can be given to what they say. They are not considered trustworthy, nor is their material considered worthy of transmission, for they caused useful material to be lost and damaged the methods and customs acknowledged, as sound and practical, by historians. When I had read the works of others and probed into the recesses of yesterday and today, I shook myself out of that drowsy complacency and sleepiness. Although not much of a writer, I exhibited my own literary ability as well as I could, and, thus, composed a book on history. In this book, I lifted the veil from conditions as they arise in the various generations. I arranged it in an orderly way in chapters dealing with historical facts and reflections, In it I showed how and why dynasties and civilization originate. I based the work on the history of the two races that constitute the population of the Maghreb at this time and people its various regions and cities, and on that of their ruling houses, both long and short-lived, including the rulers and allies they had in the past. These two races are the Arabs and the Berbers. They are the two races known to have resided in the Maghreb for such a long time that one can hardly imagine they ever lived elsewhere for its inhabitants know no other human races. I corrected the contents of the work carefully and presented it to the judgment of scholars and the elite. I followed an unusual method of arrangement and division into chapters. From the various possibilities, I chose a remarkable and original method. In the work, I commented on civilization, on urbanization, and on the essential characteristics of human social organization in a way that explains to the reader how and why things are as they are and shows him how the men who constituted a dynasty first came upon the historical scene. As a result, he will wash his hands of any blind trust in tradition. He will become aware of the conditions of periods and races that were before his time and that will be after it. I divided the work into an introduction and three books. The introduction deals with the great merit of historiography, offers an appreciation of its various methods, and cites errors of the historians. The first book deals with civilization and its essential characteristics, namely, royal authority, government, gainful occupations, ways of making a living, crafts, and sciences, as well as with the causes and reasons thereof. The second book deals with the history, races, and dynasties of the Arabs, from the beginning of creation down to this time. This will include references to such famous nations and dynasties, contemporaneous with them, as the Nabataeans the Syrians, the Persians, the Israelites, the Copts, the Greeks, the Byzantines, and the Turks. The third book deals with the history of the Berbers and of the Zanatar who are part of them, with their origins and races, and, in particular, with the royal authority and dynasties in the Maghrib. Later on, there was my trip to the east, in order to find out about the manifold illumination it offers and to fulfill the religious duty and custom of circumambulating the Kaaba and visiting Medina, as well as to study the systematic works and tomes on, Eastern, history. As a result, I was able to fill the gaps in my historical information about the non-Arab, Persian, rulers of those lands, and about the Turkish dynasties in the regions over which they ruled. I added this information to what I had written here, before in this connection... I inserted it into the treatment of the nations of the various districts and rulers of the various cities and regions that were contemporary with those, Persian and Turkish, races. In this connection, I was brief and concise and preferred the easy goal to the difficult one. I proceeded from general genealogical tables to detailed historical information. Thus, this work contains an exhaustive history of the world, it forces stubborn stray wisdom to return to the fold. It gives causes and reasons for happenings in the various dynasties. It turns out to be a vessel for philosophy, a receptacle for historical knowledge. The work contains the history of the Arabs and the Berbers, both the sedentary groups and the nomads. It also contains references to the great dynasties that were contemporary with them, and, moreover, clearly indicates memorable lessons to be learned from early conditions and from subsequent history. Therefore, I called the workbook of lessons and archive of early and subsequent history, dealing with the political events concerning the Arabs, non-Arabs, and Berbers, and the supreme rulers who were contemporary with them. I omitted nothing concerning the origin of races and dynasties, concerning the synchronism of the earliest nations, concerning the reasons for change and variation in past periods and within religious groups, concerning dynasties and religious groups, towns and hamlets, strength and humiliation large numbers and small numbers, sciences and crafts, gains and losses, changing general conditions, nomadic and sedentary life, actual events and future events, all things expected to occur in civilization. I treated everything comprehensively and exhaustively and explained the arguments for and causes of its existence. As a result, this book has become unique, as it contains unusual knowledge and familiar if hidden wisdom. Still, after all has been said. I am conscious of imperfection when, I look at, the scholars of, past and contemporary times, I confess my inability to penetrate so difficult a subject, I wish that men of scholarly competence and wide knowledge would look at the book with a critical, rather than a complacent eye, and silently correct and overlook the mistakes they come upon. The capital of knowledge that an individual scholar has to offer is small, admission, of one's shortcomings, saves from censure. Kindness from colleagues is hoped for. It is God whom I asked to make our deeds acceptable in his sight. He suffices me. He is a good protector. Introduction. The excellence of historiography. An appreciation of the various approaches to history. A glimpse at the different kinds of errors to which historians are liable. Something about why these errors occur. IT should be known that history is a discipline that has a great number of, different, approaches, its useful aspects are very many, its goal is distinguished. History, makes us acquainted with the conditions of past nations as they are reflected in their, national, character. It makes us acquainted with the biographies of the prophets and with the dynasties and policies of rulers. Whoever so desires may thus achieve the useful result of being able to imitate historical examples in religious and worldly matters. The, writing of history, requires numerous sources and greatly varied knowledge. It also requires a good speculative mind and thoroughness. Possession of these two qualities, leads the historian to the truth and keeps him from slips and errors. If he trusts historical information in its plain transmitted form and has no clear knowledge of the principles resulting from custom, the fundamental facts of politics, the nature of civilization, or the conditions governing human social organization, and if, furthermore, he does not evaluate remote or ancient material through comparison with near or contemporary material, he often cannot avoid stumbling and slipping and deviating from the high road of truth. Historians Qur'an commentators and leading transmitters have committed frequent errors in the stories and events they reported. They accepted them in the plain transmitted form, without regard for its value. They did not check them with the principles underlying such historical situations, nor did they compare them with similar material. Also, they did not probe, more deeply, with the yardstick of philosophy, with the help of knowledge of the nature of things, or with the help of speculation and historical insight. Therefore, they strayed from the truth and found themselves lost in the desert of baseless assumptions and errors. This is especially the case with figures, either of sums of money or of soldiers, whenever they occur in stories. They offer a good opportunity for false information and constitute a vehicle for nonsensical statements. They must be controlled and checked with the help of known fundamental facts, for example, Al-Masudi and many other historians report that Moses counted the army of the Israelites in the desert. He had all those able to carry arms, especially those 20 years and older, pass muster. There turned out to be 600,000 or more. In this connection, Al-Masudi forgets to take into consideration whether Egypt and Syria could possibly have held such a number of soldiers. Every realm may have as large a militia as it can hold and support, but no more. This fact is attested by well-known customs and familiar conditions. Moreover, an army of this size cannot march or fight as a unit. The whole available territory would be too small for it. If it were in battle formation, it would extend two, three, or more times beyond the field of vision. How, then, could two such parties fight with each other, or one battle formation gain the upper hand when one flank does not know what the other flank is doing? The situation at the present day testifies to the correctness of this statement. The past resembles the future more than one drop of water another. Furthermore, the realm of the Persians was much greater than that of the Israelites. This fact is attested by Nebuchadnezzar's victory over them. He swallowed up their country and gained complete control over it. He also destroyed Jerusalem, their religious and political capital, and he was merely one of the officials of the province of Fars. It is said that he was the governor of the western border region. The Persian provinces of the two Iraqs, Kurasan, Transoxania, and the region of Darbend on the Caspian Sea were much larger than the realm of the Israelites. Yet, the Persian army did not attain such a number or even approach it. The greatest concentration of Persian troops, at Al amounted to 120,000 men, all of whom had their retainers. This is according to Saif who said that with their retainers they amounted to over 200,000 persons. According to Aisha and Azuri, the troop concentration with which Rustum advanced against Saad at Al-Qadisiyah amounted to only 60,000 men, all of whom had their retainers. Then, if the Israelites had really amounted to such a number, the extent of the area under their rule would have been larger. For the size of administrative units and provinces under a particular dynasty is in direct proportion to the size of its militia and the groups that support the dynasty, as will be explained in the section on provinces in the first book. Now, it is well known that the territory of the Israelites did not comprise an area larger than the Jordan province and Palestine in Syria and the region of Medina and Kaibar in the Hijaz. Also, there were only three generations between Moses and Israel, According to the best-informed scholars, Moses was the son of Amram, the son of Kohath, Kahat al-Kahit, the son of Levi, Loui or Lawi, the son of Jacob who is Israel Allah. This is Moses' genealogy in the Torah. The length of time between Israel and Moses was indicated by Al-Masudi when he said, Israel entered Egypt with his children, the tribes, and their children, when they came to Joseph numbering seventy souls. The length of their stay in Egypt until they left with Moses for the desert was 220 years. During those years, the kings of the Copts, the pharaohs, passed them on, as their subjects, one to the other. It is improbable that the descendants of one man could branch out into such a number within four generations. It has been assumed that this number of soldiers applied to the time of Solomon and his successors. Again, this is improbable, between Solomon and Israel. There were only eleven generations, that is, Solomon, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obet, Ubi, or Yufi, the son of Boaz, Baz, or Biz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nishon, the son of Aminadab, Aminthab, or Hamintab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, Had Shrun, or Hosron, the son of Peres, Baras, or Beiruz, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. The descendants of one man in eleven generations would not branch out into such a number, as has been assumed. They might, indeed, reach hundreds or thousands. This often happens, but an increase beyond the to higher figures is improbable. Comparison with observable present-day and well-known nearby facts proves the assumption and report to be untrue. According to the definite statement of the Israelites' stories, Solomon's army amounted to 12,000 men, and his horses numbered 1,400 horses, which were stabled at his palace. This is the correct information. No attention should be paid to nonsensical statements by the common run of informants. In the days of Solomon, the Israelite state saw its greatest flourishing and their realm its widest extension. Whenever contemporaries speak about the dynastic armies of their own or recent times, and whenever they engage in discussions about Muslim or Christian soldiers, or when they get to figuring the tax revenues and the money spent by the government, the outlays of extravagant spenders, and the goods that rich and prosperous men have in stock, they are quite generally found to exaggerate, to go beyond the bounds of the ordinary, and to succumb to the temptation of sensationalism. When the officials in charge are questioned about their armies, when the goods and assets of wealthy people are assessed, and when the outlays of extravagant spenders are looked at in ordinary light, the figures will be found to amount to a tenth of what those people have said. The reason is simple. It is the common desire for sensationalism, the ease with which one may just mention a higher figure, and the disregard of reviewers and critics. This leads to failure to exercise self-criticism about one's errors and intentions, to demand from oneself moderation and fairness in reporting. reapply oneself to study and research. Such historians let themselves go and made a feast of untrue statements. They procure for themselves entertaining stories in order to lead others astray from the path of God. This is a bad enough business. It may be said that the increase of descendants to such a number would be prevented under ordinary conditions which, however, do not apply to the Israelites. The increase in their case would be a miracle in accordance with the tradition which said that one of the things revealed to their forefathers, the prophets Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was that God would cause their descendants to increase until they were more numerous than the stars of heaven and the pebbles of the earth. God fulfilled this promise to them as an act of divine grace bestowed upon them and as an extraordinary miracle in their favor. Thus, ordinary conditions could not hinder such an event, and nobody should speak against it. Someone might come out against this tradition, with the argument, that it occurs only in the Torah which, as is well known, was altered by the Jews. The reply to this argument would be that, the statement concerning the alteration, of the Torah by the Jews, is unacceptable to thorough scholars and cannot be understood in its plain meaning, since custom prevents people who have a, revealed, religion from dealing with their divine scriptures in such a manner. This was mentioned by al-Bukhari in the Sahih. Thus, the great increase in numbers in the case of the Israelites would be an extraordinary miracle. Custom, in the proper meaning of the word, would prevent anything of the sort from happening to other peoples. It is true that a coordinated battle, movement in such a large group, would hardly be possible, but none took place, and there was no need for one. It is also true that each realm has its particular number of militia, and no more. But the Israelites at first were no militiamen and had no dynasty, their numbers increased that much, so that they could gain power over the land of Canaan which God had promised them and the territory of which He had purified for them. All these things are miracles, God guides to the truth. The history of the Tubbers, the kings of the Yemen and of the Arabian Peninsula, as it is generally transmitted, is another example of silly statements by historians. It is said that from their home in the Yemen, the Tubbers used to raid Ifkia and the Berbers of the Maghrib, Afriks B. Kays B. Syfi, one of their great early kings who lived in the time of Moses or somewhat earlier, is said to have raided Ifkia. He caused a great slaughter among the Berbers, he gave them the name of Berbers when he heard their jargon and asked what that Barbara was, this gave them the name which has remained with them since that time, when he left the Maghrib, he is said, to have concentrated some Himyar tribes there. They remained there and mixed with the native population. Their descendants are the Sinha and the Kutama. This led it to Bari, al-Jajani, al-Masudi, Ibn al-Kalbi, and al bayhaqito make the statement that the Sinha and the Kutama belong to the Himyar. The Berber genealogists do not admit this, and they are right. Al-Masudi also mentioned that one of the Himyar kings after Afriks, Dulod ha who lived in the time of Solomon, raided the Maghrib and forced it into submission. Something similar is mentioned by al-Masudi concerning his son and successor, Yasir. He is said to have reached the Sand River in the Maghrib and to have been unable to find passage through it because of the great mass of sand. Therefore, he returned. Likewise, it is said that the last Tuba, Assad Abu Karib, who lived in the time of the Persian Kayanid king Yastas, ruled over Mosul and Azerbaijan. He is said to have met and rooted the Turks and to have caused a great slaughter among them. Then he raided them again a second and a third time. After that, he is said to have sent three of his sons on raids one, against the country of Furs, one, against the country of the Sogdians, one of the Turkish nations of Transoxania, and one, against the country of the Rum, Byzantines. The first brother took possession of the country up to Samarkand and crossed the desert into China. There, he found his second brother who had raided the Sogdians and had arrived in China before him. The two together caused a great slaughter in China and returned together with their booty. They left some Himya tribes in Tibet. They have been there down to this time. The third brother is said to have reached Constantinople. He laid siege to it and forced the country of the Rum Byzantines into submission. Then, he returned. All this information is remote from the truth. It is rooted in baseless and erroneous assumptions. It is more like the fiction of storytellers. The realm of the Tubbers was restricted to the Arabian Peninsula. Their home and seat was Sana in the Yemen. The Arabian Peninsula is surrounded by the ocean on three sides, the Indian Ocean on the south, the Persian Gulf jutting out of the Indian Ocean to Al-Basra on the east, and the Red Sea jutting out of the Indian Ocean to Suez in Egypt on the west. This can be seen on the map. There is no way from the Yemen to the Maghrib except via Suez. The distance between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean is two days journey or less. It is unlikely that the distance could be traversed by a great ruler with a large army unless he controlled that region. This as a rule is impossible. In that region there were the Amalekites and Canaan in Syria, and in Egypt, the Copts. Later on, the Amalekites took possession of Egypt and the Israelites took possession of Syria. There is, however, no report that the Tuba's ever fought against one of these nations or that they had possession of any part of this region. Furthermore, the distance from the Yemen to the Maghrib is great, and an army requires much food and fodder. Soldiers travelling in regions other than their own have to requisition grain and livestock and to plunder the countries they pass through. As a rule, such a procedure does not yield enough food and fodder, on the other hand, if they attempted to take along enough provisions from their own region, they would not have enough animals for transportation. So, their whole line of march necessarily takes them through regions they must take possession of and force into submission in order to obtain provisions from them. Again, it would be a most unlikely and impossible assumption that such an army could pass through all those nations without disturbing them, obtaining its provisions by peaceful negotiation. This shows that all such information, About Tubba expeditions to the Maghrib, is silly or fictitious. Mention of the allegedly impassable sand river has never been heard in the Maghrib, although the Maghrib has often been crossed and its roads have been explored by travelers and raiders at all times and in every direction. Because of the unusual character of the story, there is much eagerness to pass it on with regard to the alleged raid of the Tubbas against the countries of the east and the land of the Turks. It must be admitted that the line of march in this case is wider than the narrow passage at Suez. The distance, however, is greater, and the Persian and Byzantine nations are interposed on the way to the Turks. There is no report that the Tuba's ever took possession of the countries of the Persians and Byzantines. They merely fought the Persians on the borders of the Iraq and of the Arab countries between al-Bahrain and al-Hira, which were border regions common to both nations. These wars took place between the Tuba dhul and the Kayanid king Kaguas, and again between the Tuba al Asgar Abu-Karib and the Kayanid Bishdasp. There were other wars later on with rulers of the dynasties that succeeded the Kayanids, and, in turn, with their successors, the Sasanians. It would, however, ordinarily have been impossible for the Taba's to traverse the land of the Persians on their way to raid the countries of the Turks and Tibet because of the nations that are interposed on the way to the Turks, because of the need for food and fodder, as well as the great distance, mentioned before. All information to this effect is silly and fictitious. Even if the way this information is transmitted was sound, the points mentioned would cast suspicion upon it. All the more then must the information be suspect since the manner in which it has been transmitted is not sound. In connection with Yathrib, Medina, and the AWS and Khazraj, Ibn Ishaq says that the last Tubba traveled eastward to the Iraq and Persia, but a raid by the Tubbas against the countries of the Turks and Tibet is in no way confirmed by the established facts. Assertions to this effect should not be trusted, all such information should be investigated and checked with sound norms, the result will be that it will most beautifully be demolished. God is the guide to that which is correct. Even more unlikely and more deeply rooted in baseless assumptions is the common interpretation of the following verse of the Surat al-Fodja, Did you not see what your Lord did with Ad-Iram, that of the pillars? The commentators consider the word Iram the name of a city which is described as having pillars, that is, columns. They report that Ad-B. Us-B. Iram had two sons, Shadid and Shadid, who ruled after him, Shadid perished. Shaddad became the sole ruler of the realm, and the kings there submitted to his authority. When Shaddad heard a description of paradise, he said, I shall build something like it, and he built the city of Iram in the desert of Aden over a period of three hundred years, he himself lived nine hundred years. It is said to have been a large city, with castles of gold and silver and columns of emerald and hyacinth, containing all kinds of trees and freely flowing rivers. When the construction of the city, was completed, Shadad went there with the people of his realm, but when B was the distance of only one day and night away from it, God sent a clamor from heaven, and all of them perished. This is reported by Akdabari, Artholabi, Az-Zamakshari, and other Quran commentators. They transmit the following story on the authority of one of the men around Muhammad, b. Kailabar, when he went out in search of some of his camels, he hit upon, the city, and took away from it as much as he could carry. His story reached Mawaya who had him brought to him, and he told the story. Mawaya sent for Kab al-Atbar and asked him about it. Kab said, It is Iram, that of the pillars. Iram will be entered in your time by a Muslim who is of a reddish, ruddy colour, and short, with a mole at his eyebrow and one on his neck, who goes out in search of some of his camels. He then turned around and, seeing Ibn Qailabar, he said, Indeed. He is that man. No information about this city has since become available anywhere on earth. The desert of Aden where the city is supposed to have been built lies in the middle of the Yemen. It has been inhabited continuously, and travellers and guides have explored its roads in every direction. Yet, no information about the city has been reported. No antiquarian, no nation has mentioned it. If, the commentators, said that it had disappeared like other antiquities, the story would be more likely but they expressly say that it still exists. Some identify it with Damascus, because Damascus was in the possession of the people of Ad. Others go so far in their crazy talk as to maintain that the city lies hidden from sensual perception and can be discovered only by trained, magicians, and sorcerers. All these are assumptions that would better be termed nonsense. All these suggestions proffered by Quran commentators were the result of grammatical considerations, for Arabic grammar requires the expression, that of the pillars, to be an attribute of Iram. The word pillars was understood to mean columns. Thus, Iram was narrowed down in its meaning to some sort of building. The Quran commentators were influenced in their interpretation by the reading of Ibn Azubair, who read, not Ardin with nunation but a genitive construction, Ad of Iram. They then adopted these stories, which are better called fictitious fables and which are quite similar to the Quran. Interpretations of Safeway, which are related as comic anecdotes. In fact, however, the pillars are tent poles. If columns were intended by the word, it would not be far fetched, as the power of the people of Ad was well known, and they could be described as people with buildings and columns in the general way. But it would be far fetched to say that a special building in one or another specific city was intended. If it is a genitive construction, as would be the case according to the reading of Ibn Az Zubair, it would be a genitive construction used to express tribal relationships, such as, for instance, the Quraysh of Kanana, or the Ilias of Mudar, or the Rabia of Nazir. There is no need for such an implausible interpretation which uses for its starting point silly stories of the sort mentioned, which cannot be imputed to the Qur'an, because they are so implausible. Another fictitious story of the historians, which they all report, concerns the reason for al rashids destruction of the sides. It is the story of Al-Abbasar, al rashids sister, and Jafar b. Yahya b. Khalid, his client, al rashid is said to have worried about where to place them when he was drinking wine with them. He wanted to receive them together in his company. Therefore, he permitted them to conclude a marriage that was not consummated. Al-Abbasar then tricked Jafar in her desire to be alone with him for she had fallen in love with him. Jafar finally had intercourse with her it is assumed, when he was drunk and she became pregnant. The story was reported to our rashid who flew into a rage. This story is irreconcilable with Al-Abbasar's position, her religiousness, her parentage, and her exalted rank. She was a descendant of Abdallah b. abbas and separated from him by only four generations, and they were the most distinguished and greatest men in Islam after him. Al Abbasar was the daughter of Muhammad al Mahdi, the son of Abu Jafar Abdallah al Manslir, the son of Muhammad as Sajjad, the son of the father of the Caliphs Ali. Ali was the son of Abdallah, the interpreter of the Quran, the son of the Prophet's uncle, Al Abbas. Al Abbasar was the daughter of a Caliph and the sister of a Caliph. She was born to royal power, into the prophetical succession, the Caliphate, and descended from the men around Muhammad Ariel, his uncles. She was connected by birth with the leadership of Islam, the light of the revelation, and the place where the angels descended to bring the revelation. She was close in time to the desert attitude of true Arabism, to that simple state of Islam still far from the habits of luxury and lush pastures of sin. Where should one look for chastity and modesty, if she did not possess them? Where could cleanliness and purity be found, if they no longer existed in her house? How could she link her pedigree with, that of, Jafar b. Yahya and stain her Arab nobility with a Persian client, his Persian ancestor had been acquired as a slave, or taken as a client, by one of her ancestors, an uncle of the prophet and noble Karashite. and all Jafar did was that he together with his father was dragged along, by the growing fame of, the Abbasid dynasty and thus prepared for and elevated to a position of nobility. And how could it be that our Rashid, with his high-mindedness and great pride, would permit himself to become related by marriage to Persian clients. If a critical person looks at this story in all fairness and compares al-Abbasar with the daughter of a great ruler of his own time, he must find it disgusting and unbelievable that she could have done such a thing with one of the clients of her dynasty and while her family was in power. He would insist that the story be considered untrue, and who could compare with al-Abbasar and al-Rashid in dignity? The reason for the destruction of the Barmsides was their attempt to gain control over the dynasty and their retention of the tax revenues. This went so far that when our Rashid wanted even a little money, he could not get it. They took his affairs out of his hands and shared with him in his authority. He had no say with them in the affairs of his realm. Their influence grew, and their fame spread. They filled the positions and ranks of the government with their own children and creatures who became high officials and thus barred all others from the positions of wazir, secretary, army commander, doorkeeper, hajb, and from the military and civilian administration. It is said that in the palace of Ar-Rashid, there were 25 high officials, both military and civilian, all children of Yahya b. Khalid. There, they crowded the people of the dynasty and pushed them out by force, they could do that because of the position of their father, Yahya mentor to Harun both as crown prince and as caliph. Harun, practically grew up in his lap and got all his education from him. Harun, let him handle his affairs and used to call him father, as a result, the, balmsides, and not the government, wielded all the influence, their presumption grew, their position became more and more influential, they became the center of attention, all obeyed them, all hopes were addressed to them, from the farthest borders, presents and gifts of rulers and emirs were sent to them. The tax money found its way into their treasury, to serve as an introduction to them and to procure their favour. They gave gifts to and bestowed favours upon the men of the shire hand upon important relatives of the Prophet. They gave the poor from the noble families, related to the Prophet, something to earn. They freed the captives. Thus, they were given praise as was not given to their Caliph. They showered privileges and gifts upon those who came to ask favors from them. They gained control over villages and estates in the open country and, near, the main cities in every province. Eventually, the barnsides irritated the inner circle. They caused resentment among the elite and aroused the displeasure of high officials. Jealousy and envy of all sorts began to show themselves, and the scorpions of intrigue crept into their soft beds in the government. The Khartabar family, Chafar's maternal uncles, led the intrigues against them, feelings for blood ties and relationship could not move or sway them, the Cartabar family, from the envy which was so heavy on their hearts. This joined with their master's incipient jealousy, with his dislike of restrictions and of being treated with high-handedness, and with his latent resentment aroused by small acts of presumptuousness on the part of the sides. When they continued to flourish as they did, they were led to gross insubordination, as is shown, for instance, by their action in the case of Yahya B, Abdallah B, Hassan B, Al Hassan B, Al B, Abi Talib, the brother of the Pure Soul, and Nafs Zakia, Muhammad Al Madi, who had revolted against Al Mansur. This Yahya had been brought back by Al Fadl B. Yahya from the country of the Dalim under a safe conduct of Ar-Rashid written in his own hand. According to At-Tabari, al-Fadl, had paid out a million dirhams in this matter. Ar-Rashid handed Yahya over to Jafar to keep him imprisoned in his house and under his eyes. He held him for a while but, prompted by presumption, Jafar freed Yahya by his own decision, out of respect for the blood of the Prophet's family as he thought, and in order to show his presumption against the government. When the matter was reported to Ar-Rashid, he asked Jafar about Yahya. Jafar understood and said that he had let him go. Ar-Rashid outwardly indicated approval and kept his grudge to himself. Thus, Jafar himself paved the way for his own and his family's undoing, which ended with the collapse of their exalted position, with the heavens falling in upon them and the earth sinking with them and their house their days of glory became a thing of the past, an example to later generations. Close examination of their story, scrutinizing the ways of government and their own conduct, discloses that all this was natural and is easily explained. Looking at Ibn Abdrabib's report on our Rashid's conversation with his great-granduncle Dawud B. Ali concerning the destruction of the sides as well as al asmais evening coseries with our Rashid and Al-Fadl B. Yahya, as mentioned in the chapter on poets in the Igd, one understands that it was only jealousy and struggle for control on the part of the Caliph and his subordinates that killed them. Another factor was the verses that enemies of the Barmsides among the inner circles surreptitiously gave the singers to recite, in the intention that the Caliph should hear them and his stored-up animosity against them be aroused. These are the verses, "Would that Hind could fulfill her promise to us, and deliver us from our predicament and for once act on her own. The impotent person is he who never acts on his own. When our Rashid heard these verses, he exclaimed, Indeed, I am just such an impotent person. By this and similar methods, the enemies of the Barmsides eventually succeeded in arousing our Rashid's latent jealousy and in bringing his terrible vengeance upon them. God is our refuge from men's desire for power and from misfortune. The stupid story of our Rashid's wine bibbing and his getting drunk in the company of boon companions is really abominable. It does not in the least agree with our Rashid's attitude toward the fulfillment of the requirements of religion and justice incumbent upon caliphs. He consorted with religious scholars and saints, he had discussions with al Fadl b. Iyad, Ibn al samak and al Amari, and he corresponded with Sufyan, he wept when he heard their sermons. Then, there is his prayer in Mecca when he circumambulated the Kaaba. He was pious, observed the times of prayer, and attended the morning prayer at its earliest hour. According to At-Tabari and others, he used every day to pray 100 supererogatory rakas. Alternately, he was used to go on raids, against unbelievers, one year and to make the pilgrimage to Mecca the other. He rebuked his jester, Ibn Abi Mariam, who made an unseemly remark to him during prayer. When Ibn Abi Maryam heard our Rashid recite, how is it that I should not worship him who created me? he said, indeed, I do not know why. Our Rashid could not suppress a laugh, but then he turned to him angrily and said, "O oh, Ibn Abi Maryam, jokes even during the prayer? Beware, beware of the Quran and Islam. Apart from that, you may do whatever you wish. Furthermore, our Rashid possessed a good deal of learning and simplicity." because his epoch was close to that of his forebears who had those qualities. The time between him and his grandfather, Abu Jafar was not a long one. He was a young lad when Abu Jafar died. Abu Jafar possessed a good deal of learning and religion before he became caliph and kept them. Afterwards, it was he who advised Malik to write the Mawatta, saying, O oh Abu Abdallah, no one remains on earth more learned than I and you. Now." I am too much occupied with the Caliphate, therefore, you should write a book for the people which will be useful for them. In it you should avoid the laxity of Ibn Abbas and the severity of Ibn Umar, and present it clearly to the people." Malik commented, On that occasion, Alman Sir indeed taught me to be an author. Alman Sir's son, Al-Mahdi, our Rashid's father, experienced the austerity of Ulman Sir, who would not make use of the public treasury to provide new clothes for his family. One day, al came to him when he was in his office discussing with the tailors the patching of his family's worn garments. al did not like that and said, ''O commander of the faithful, this year I shall pay for the clothes of the members of the family from my own income.'' al manzas reply was, ''Do that.'' He did not prevent him from paying himself but would not permit any public Muslim money to be spent for it. Al-Rashid was very close in time to that Caliph and to his forebears. He was reared under the influence of such and similar conduct in his own family, so that it became his own nature. How could such a man have been a wine-bibber and have drunk wine openly? It is well known that noble pre-Islamic Arabs avoided wine. The vine was not one of the plants, cultivated, by them. Most of them considered it reprehensible to drink wine. Ar-Rashid and his forebears were very successful in avoiding anything reprehensible in their religious or worldly affairs and in making all praiseworthy actions and qualities of perfection, as well as the aspirations of the Arabs, their own nature. One may further compare the story of the physician Jibril B. Bukshu reported by At-Dabari and al-Masudi. A fish had been served at Ar-Rashid's table, and Jibril had not permitted him to eat it. Jibril, had then ordered the table steward to bring the fish to, Jabril's, house, R. Rashid noticed it and got suspicious, he had his servant spy on Jabril, and the servant observed him partaking of it, in order to justify himself, Ibn Bukshu had three pieces of fish placed in three separate dishes, he mixed the first piece with meat that had been prepared with different kinds of spices, vegetables, hot sauces, and sweets, he poured iced water over the second piece, and pure wine over the third. The first and second dishes, he said, were for the Caliph to eat, no matter whether something was added by him Ibn Bukshu, to the fish or not. The third dish, he said, was for himself to eat. He gave the three dishes to the table steward. When our Rashid woke up and had Ibn Bukshu called in to reprimand him, the latter had the three dishes brought. The one with wine had become a soup with small pieces of fish, but the two other dishes had spoiled and smelled differently. This was sufficient justification of Ibn Bukshu's action, in eating a dish of fish that he had prevented the Caliph from eating. It is clear from this story that al rashids avoidance of wine was a fact well known to his inner circle and to those who dined with him. It is a well-established fact that Ar-Rashid had consented to keep Abu Nuwas imprisoned until he repented and gave up his ways, because he had heard of the latter's excessive wine-bibbing. Ar-Rashid used to drink a date liquor, Nabi, according to the Iraqi legal school whose responser, concerning the permissibility of that drink, are well known. But he cannot be suspected of having drunk pure wine, Silly reports to This effect cannot be credited. He was not the man to do something that is forbidden and considered by the Muslims as one of the greatest of the capital sins. Not one of these people, the early Abbasids, had anything to do with effeminate prodigality or luxury in matters of clothing, jewelry, or the kind of food they took. They still retained the tough desert attitude and the simple state of Islam. Could it be assumed they would do something that would lead from the lawful to the unlawful and from the licit to the illicit? Historians such as At-Tabari, al-Masudi, and others are agreed that all the early Yumaway and Abbasid caliphs used to ride out with only light silver ornamentation on their belts, swords, bridles, and saddles, and that the first caliph to originate riding out in golden apparel was al-Mutaz b. al-Mutawakil, the eighth caliph after al-Rashid. The same applied to their clothing. Could one, then, assume any differently with regard to what they drank? This will become still clearer when the nature of dynastic beginnings in desert life and modest circumstances is understood, as we shall explain it among the problems discussed in the first book, if God wills. A parallel or similar story is that reported by all, the historians, about Yahya B. Aiktham, the judge and friend of Ma'mun. He is said to have drunk wine together with Moon and to have gotten drunk one night. He lay buried on the sweet basil until he woke up. The following verses are recited in his name. O oh my lord, commander of all the people, he who gave me to drink was unjust in his judgment. I neglected the cupbearer, and he caused me to be as you see me, deprived of intelligence and religion. The same applies to Ibn Aqtum and Al-Mamun that applies to our rashid What they drank was a date liquor navy, which in their opinion was not forbidden. There can be no question of drunkenness in connection with them. Yahya's familiarity with Al-Mamun was friendship in Islam. It is an established fact that Yahya slept in Al-Mamun's room. It has been reported, as an indication of Al-Mamun's excellence and affability, that one night he awoke, got up and felt around for the chamber pot. He was afraid to wake Yahya b. Aiktham. It also is an established fact that the two used to pray together at the morning prayer. How does that accord with drinking wine together? Furthermore, Yahya b. Aiktham was a transmitter of traditions. He was praised by Ibn Hanbal and Judge Isma'il at tirmidhi published traditions on his authority. The hadith expert Al-Meetzi mentioned that al-Bukhari transmitted traditions on Yahya's authority in works other than the Jami As-Sahi. To vilify Yahya is to vilify all of these scholars, furthermore, licentious persons accuse Yahya b. ache them of having had an inclination for young men. This is an affront to God and a malicious lie directed against religious scholars. These persons base themselves on storyteller's silly reports, which perhaps were an invention of Yahya's enemies, for he was much envied because of his perfection and his friendship with the ruler. His position in scholarship and religion makes such a thing impossible. When Ibn Hanbal was told about these rumors concerning Yahya, he exclaimed, For God's sake, for God's sake, who would say such a thing? He disapproved of it very strongly. When the talk about Yahya was mentioned to Ismail, he exclaimed, Heaven forbid that the probity of such a man should cease to exist because of the lying accusations of envious talibearers." He said, Yahya B. Aktham is innocent in the eyes of God of any such relationship with young men, as that, of which he is accused. I got to know his most intimate thoughts and found him to be much in fear of God, however, he possessed a certain playfulness and friendliness that might have provoked such accusations. Ibn Hibbin mentioned him in the thick art. he said that no attention should be paid to these tales about him because most of them were not correct. A similar story is the one about the basket reported by Ibn Abdrabi, author of the Iqt, in explanation of how Al Moon came to be al-Hassan p. Sol's son-in-law by marrying his daughter Buran. One night, on his rambles through the streets of Baghdad, al Moon is said to have come upon a basket that was being let down from one of the roofs by means of pulleys and twisted cords of silk thread. He seated himself in the basket and grabbed the pulley, which started moving. He was taken up into a chamber of such and such a condition. Ibn Abdrabi described the eye and soul-filling splendor of its carpets, the magnificence of its furnishings, and the beauty of its appearance. Then, A woman of extraordinary, seductive beauty is said to have come forth from behind curtains in that chamber. She greeted Al-Mamun and invited him to keep her company. He drank wine with her the whole night long. In the morning he returned to his companions at the place where they had been awaiting him. He had fallen so much in love with the woman that he asked her father for her hand. How does all this accord with Al-Mamun's well-known religion and learning, with his imitation of the way of life of his forefathers, the right-guided? abbasid, caliphs, with his adoption of the way of life of those pillars of Islam, the first, four caliphs, with his respect for the religious scholars, or his observance in his prayers and legal practice of the norms established by God. How could it be correct that he would act like, one of those, wicked scoundrels who amuse themselves by rambling about at night, entering strange houses in the dark, and engaging in nocturnal trysts in the manner of Bedouin lovers? And how does that story fit with the position and noble character of al-Hassan B. Sol's daughter, and with the firm morality and chastity that reigned in her father's house? There are many such stories, they are always cropping up in the works of the historians. The incentive for inventing and reporting them is a general inclination to forbidden pleasures and for smearing the reputation of others. People justify their own subservience to pleasure by citing men and women of the past, who allegedly did the same things they are doing. Therefore, they often appear very eager for such information and are alert to find it when they go through the pages of published works. If they would follow the example of the people, of the past, in other respects and in the qualities of perfection that were theirs and for which they are well known, it would be better for them, if they would know. I once criticized a royal prince for being so eager to learn to sing and play the strings. I told him it was not a matter that should concern him and that it did not befit his position. He referred me to Ibrahim B. al who was the leading musician and best singer in his time. I replied, for heaven's sake, why do you not rather follow the example of his father or his brother? Do you not see how that activity prevented Ibrahim from attaining their position? The prince, however, was deaf to my criticism and turned away. Further silly information which is accepted by many historians concerns the Ubedid, Fatimids, the Shia caliphs in al kayrawan and Cairo. These historians deny their elite origin and attack, the genuineness of, their descent from the Imam Ismail, the son of Jafar Asadik, They base themselves in this respect on stories that were made up in favor of the weaker Abbasid Caliphs by people who wanted to ingratiate themselves with them through accusations against their active opponents and who, therefore, liked to say all kinds of bad things about their enemies. We shall mention some such stories in our treatment of the history of the Ubedid Fatimids. These historians do not care to consider the factual proofs and circumstantial evidence that require us to recognize that the contrary is true and that their claim is a lie and must be rejected. They all tell the same story about Theba Gilli Ji of the Shia dynasty. Abu Abdallah al-Mutaisab went among the Qutama urging acceptance of the family of Muhammad, the alids His activity became known. It was learned how much he cared for Ubaidallah al-Mahdi and his son, Abu Wan Qasim. Therefore, these two feared for their lives and fled the East, the seat of the Caliphate. They passed through Egypt and left Alexandria disguised as merchants, Isa and Noshari, the governor of Egypt and Alexandria, was informed of them, he sent cavalry troops in pursuit of them, but when their pursuers reached them, they did not recognize them because of their attire and disguise. They escaped into the Maghrib, Al-Mutadid ordered the Aghlabid rulers of Ifkiya in al Kayrawan, as well as the Midrarid rulers of Stilmasa to search everywhere for them and to keep a sharp lookout for them. Eliasa, the Midrarid lord of Stilmasa, learned about their hiding place in his country and detained them, in order to please the caliph. This was before the Shia victory over the Aglabids in Al-Kayrawan. Thereafter, as is well known, the Ubidid Fatimid propaganda spread successfully throughout Ifhir and the Maghrib, and then, in turn, reached the Yemen, Alexandria, and the rest of Egypt, Syria and the Hijaz. The Ubedid Fatimids, shared the realm of Islam equally with the Abbasids. They almost succeeded in penetrating the home country of the Abbasids and in taking their place as rulers. Their propaganda in Baghdad and the Iraq met with success through the Emir al-Basawiri, one of the Dalin clients who had gained control of the Abbasid caliphs. This happened as the result of a quarrel between al-Basawiri and the non-Arab emirs. For a whole year, the Ubedid Fatimids, were mentioned in the Friday prayer from the pulpits of Baghdad. The Abbasids were continually bothered by the Ubedid Fatimid power and preponderance, and the Yumaway rulers beyond the sea, in Spain, expressed their annoyance with them and threatened war against them. How could all this have befallen a fraudulent claimant to the rulership, who was, moreover, considered a liar? One should compare this account with the history of the Karmatian. His genealogy was, in fact, fraudulent, how completely did his propaganda disintegrate and his followers disperse, their viciousness and guile soon became apparent, they came to an evil end and tasted a bitter fate. If the Ubedid Fatimids had been in the same situation, it would have become known, even had it taken some time, whatever qualities of character a man may have, they will become known, even if he imagines they are concealed from the people, the Ubedid Fatimid, The dynasty lasted uninterruptedly for about 270 years. They held possession of the place where Ibrahim Abraham, had stood and where he had prayed, the home of the Prophet and the place where he was buried, the place where the pilgrims stand and where the angels descended, to bring the revelation to Muhammad. Then, their rule came to an end. During all that time, their partisans showed them the greatest devotion and love and firmly believed in their descent from the Imam Ismail the son of Jafar Asadik. Even after the dynasty had gone and its influence had disappeared, people still came forward to press the claims of the sect. They proclaimed the names of young children, descendants of, the Ubedid Fatimids, whom they believed entitled to the caliphate. They went so far as to consider them as having actually been appointed to the succession by preceding imams. Had there been doubts about their pedigree, their followers would not have undergone the dangers involved in supporting them. A sectarian does not manipulate his own affairs, nor sow confusion within his own sect, nor act as a liar where his own beliefs are concerned. It is strange that Judge Abu Bakr al-Bakilani the great speculative theologian, was inclined to credit this unacceptable view as to the spuriousness of the Ubedid Fatimid genealogy, and upheld this weak opinion. If the reason for his attitude was the heretical and extremist Shiism of the Ubedid Fatimids, it would not be valid for his denial of their elite descent, does not invalidate, the objectionable character of, their sectarian beliefs, nor would establishment of their, elite, descent be of any help to them before God in the question of their unbelief. God said to Noah concerning his sons, He does not belong to your family, it is an improper action, so do not ask me regarding that of which you have no knowledge. Muhammad exhorted Fatima in these words, O Fatima, act, as you wish. I shall be of no help to you before God. When a man comes to know a problem or to be certain about a matter, he must openly state his knowledge or his certainty. God speaks the truth. He leads men into the right way. Those people, the Ubedid Fatimids, were constantly on the move because of the suspicions various governments had concerning them. They were kept under observation by the tyrants because their partisans were numerous and their propaganda had spread far and wide. Time after time they had to leave the places where they had settled, their men, therefore, took refuge in hiding, and their identity was hardly known, as, the poet, says, If you would ask the days what my name is, they would not know, and where I am, they would not know where I am. This went so far that Muhammad, the son of the Imam Ismail, the ancestor of Ubaid Allah-ul-Mahdi, was called the concealed Imam. His partisans called him by that name because they were agreed on the fact he was hiding out of fear of those who had them in their power. The partisans of the Abbasids made much use of this fact when they came out with their attack against the pedigree of the Ubedid Fatimids. They tried to ingratiate themselves with the weak Abbasid Caliphs by professing the erroneous opinion that the elite descent of the Ubedid Fatimids was spurious. It pleased the Abbasid clients and the emirs who were in charge of military operations against the enemies of the Abbasids. It helped them and the government to make up for their inability to resist and repel the Kutima Berbers, the partisans and propagandists of the Ubedid Fatimids, who had taken Syria, Egypt, and the Hijaz away from the Abbasids. The judges in Baghdad eventually prepared an official statement denying the elite origin of the Ubaidi.D. Fatimids. The statement was witnessed by a number of prominent men, among them the Sharif Aradi and his brother al-Murtada, and ibn al-Barthawi. Among the religious scholars, who also witnessed the document, were Abu Hamid al isfarayini al-Quduri, a Samari ibn al-Aqfani, al Abi Wardi, the Shia jurist Abu Abdallah a Newman, and other prominent Muslims in Baghdad. The event took place one memorable day in the year 402. 1011, in the time of al-Qadir. The testimony, of these witnesses, was based upon hearsay, on what people in Baghdad generally believed. Most of them were partisans of the Abbasids who attacked the elite origin, of the Ubedid Fatimids. The historians reported the information as they had heard it. They handed it down to us just as they remembered it. However, the truth lies behind it. Al-Mutadid's letter concerning Ubaid Allah, addressed. To the Aglai Bid in Al-Karawan and the Midrarid in Stilmasa, testifies most truthfully to the correctness of the Alid, origin of the Ubedid Fatimids, and proves it most clearly. Al-Mutadid, as a very close relative, was better qualified than anyone else to speak about the genealogy of the Prophet's house. Dynasty and government serve as the world's marketplace, attracting to it the products of scholarship and craftsmanship alike wayward wisdom and forgotten law turn up there. In this market stories are told and items of historical information are delivered. Whatever is in demand on this market is in general demand everywhere else. Now, whenever the established dynasty avoids injustice, prejudice, weakness, and double-dealing, with determination keeping to the right path and never swerving from it, the wares on its market are as pure silver and fine gold. However, when it is influenced by selfish interests and rivalries, or swayed by vendors of tyranny and dishonesty, the wares of its marketplace become as dross and debased metals. The intelligent critic must judge for himself as he looks around, examining this, admiring that, and choosing this. A similar and even more improbable story is one privately discussed by those who attack the a lead, descent of Idris B. Idris B. Abdallah B. Hassan B. Al-Hassan B. Al B. Abi Talib, who became imam after his father in Morocco. They hint at the punishable crime of adultery by insinuating that the unborn child left after the death of the elder Idris was in fact the child of Rashid, a client of the Idrisids. How stupid of these God-forsaken men! They should know that the elder Idris married into the Berber tribes and, from the time he came to the Maghrib until his death, was firmly rooted in desert life. In the desert, no such thing could remain a secret, there are no hiding places there where things can be done in secret, the neighbors, if they are women, can always see and, if they are men, always hear what their women are doing, because the houses are low and clustered together without space between them. Rashid was entrusted with the stewardship of all the women after the death of his master, upon the recommendation of friends and partisans of the Idrisids and subject to the supervision of them all. Furthermore, all Moroccan Berbers agreed to render the oath of allegiance to the younger Idris as his father's successor, they voluntarily agreed to obey him, they swore that they were willing to die for him, and they exposed themselves to mortal danger protecting him in his wars and raids. Had they told each other some such scandalous story or heard it from someone else, even a vengeful enemy or scandal-mongering rebel, some of them at least would have refused to do those things. No, this story originated with the Abbasid opponents of the Idrisids and with the Aghlabids, the Abbasid governors and officials in Ifkir. This happened in the following manner. When the elder Idris fled to the Maghrib after the Battle of Faik, Al Hadi sent orders to the Aghlabids to lie in wait and keep a sharp watch out for him. However, they did not catch him, and he escaped safely to the Maghrib. He consolidated his position, and his propaganda was successful. Later on, Ar-Rashid became aware of the secret Shia leanings of Wadi, the Abbasid client and governor of Alexandria, and of his deceitful attitude in connection with the escape of Idris to the Maghrib, and Ar-Rashid killed Wadi. Then, Ash-Shamak, a client of Ar-Rashid's father, suggested to Ar-Rashid a ruse by means of which to kill Idris. Ash-Shamak pretended to become his adherent and to have broken with his Abbasid masters, Idris took him under his protection and admitted him to his private company. Once, when Idris was alone, Ash-Shamak gave him some poison and thus killed him. The news of his death was received by the Abbasids most favorably, since they hoped that it would cut the roots and blunt the edge of the Alid propaganda in the Maghrib. News of the unborn child left after Idris' death had not, yet, reached them. Thus, it was only a brief moment until the Alid propaganda reappeared. The Shia was successful in the Maghrib, and Shia rule was renewed through Idris, Idris' son. This was a most painful blow to the Abbasids. Weakness and senility had already taken hold of the Arab dynasty. No longer could, the Abbasids, aspire to the control of remote regions. Far away as the elder Idris was in the Maghrib, under the protection of the Berbers, Al Rashid had just enough power, and no more, to poison him with the help of a ruse. Therefore, the Abbasids now had recourse to their Aghlabid clients in Ifrigia. They asked them to heal the dangerous breach caused by the Idrisids, to take measures against the woe that threatened to befall the dynasty from that direction, and to uproot the Idrisids, before they could spread. Moon and the succeeding caliphs wrote to the Aghlabids to this effect. However, the Aghlabids were also too weak to control the Berbers of Morocco, and might better have tried to embarrass their own rulers as, the Idrisids embarrassed them, because the power of the Caliphate had been usurped by non-Arab slaves, who diverted to their own purposes its entire control and authority over men, taxes, and functionaries. It was as the contemporary, Abbasid, poet described it, a caliph in a cage, between Wasif and Bugha, he says what they tell him, like a parrot, the Aglabid emirs, therefore, Were afraid of possible intrigues and tried all kinds of excuses. Sometimes, they belittled the Maghrib and its inhabitants. At other times, they tried to arouse fear of the power of Idris and his descendants who had taken his place there. They wrote the Abbasids that he was crossing the borders of his territory. They included his coins among their gifts, presents, and tax collections, in order to show his growing influence and to spread terror about his increasing power, to magnify the dangers which would lie in attacking and fighting him, as they were being asked to do, and to threaten a change in allegiance if they were forced to that. Again, at other times, they attacked the descent of Idris with the aforementioned lie, in order to harm him. They did not care whether the accusation was true or not. The distance, from Baghdad, was great, and, weak-minded as the Abbasid children and their non-Arab slaves were, they took anybody's word and listened to anybody's noise. They went on in this manner until the Akhlabid rule came to an end. The nasty remark about the Idrisid genealogy then became known to the mob. Some slanderers listened eagerly to it, using it to harm the Idrisids when there were rivalries. Why do such godforsaken men stray from the intentions of the religious law, which knows no difference between definite fact and mere guess? Idris was born in his father's bed, and the child belongs to the bed. It is a Muslim article of faith that the descendants of Muhammad are above any such thing as adultery. God removed every turpitude from them and cleansed them. Idris' bed is free of all uncleanliness and all turpitude. This is decided in the Quran. Whoever believes the contrary confesses his guilt and invites unbelief. I have refuted the accusation against Idris here at length, in order to forestall doubts and strike out against the envious. I heard the story with my own ears from a man who was hostile to the Idrisids, and attacked their descent with this lying invention. In his self-deception, he passed on the story on the authority of certain historians of the Maghrib who had turned their backs on Muhammad's descendants and were skeptical concerning their ancestors. But the situation of the Idrisids is above all that and not susceptible of such a taint. No space should be devoted to refuting such an accusation, since, to deny a fault where, the existence of, a fault is impossible is, in itself, a fault. However, I did defend them here in this world and, thus, I hope that they will defend me on the day of resurrection. It should be known that most of those who attack the, Alid, descent of, the Idrisids are themselves persons who claim to be descendants of Muhammad or pretend to be connected with his descendants, and who envy the descendants of Idris. The claim to, Muhammadan descent is a great title to nobility among nations and races in all regions. Therefore, it is subject to suspicion. Now, both in their native Fez and in the other regions of the Maghrib, the descent of the Idrisids is so well known and evident that almost no one can show or hope to show as well established a pedigree. It is the result of continuous transmission by the more recent nations and generations on the authority of the older preceding ones. The Idrissids count the house of their ancestor Idris, the founder and builder of Fez, among their houses, his mosque is adjacent to their quarter and streets, his sword is, suspended, unsheathed atop the main minaret of their residence, there are other relics of his which have been attested to many times in an uninterrupted tradition, so that the tradition concerning them is almost as valuable as direct observation, as to its reliability. Other descendants of Muhammad can look at these signs which God gave to the Idrisids. They will see the Muhammadan nobility of the Idrisids enhanced by the majesty of the royal authority their ancestors exercised in the Maghrib. They will realize that they themselves have nothing of the sort and that they do not measure up even halfway to any one of the Idrisids. They will also realize that those who claim to be Muhammad's descendants but do not have such testimonies to confirm their claim as the Idrisids have. May it best find their position conceded, as possibly true, because people are to be believed with regard to the descent they claim for themselves, but there is a difference between what is known and what is mere guess, between what is certain and what is merely conceded as possibly true. When they realize these facts, they are choked in their own spittle, which they swallow in impotent jealousy. Their private envy causes many of them to wish that they could bring down the Idrisids from their noble position to the status of ordinary, humble persons. Therefore, they have recourse to spite and persistent malevolence and invent erroneous and lying accusations such as the one discussed. They justify themselves by the assumption that all guesses are equally probable. They ought to prove that we know of no descendants of Muhammad whose lineage is so clearly and obviously established as that of the descendants of Idris of the family of al-Hassan. The most distinguished Idrisids at this time are the Banu Imran in Fez. They are descendants of Yahya al-Juti b. Muhammad b. Yahya al-Adam b. Al-Qasim b. Idris b. Idris. They are the chiefs of the Alids there. They live, at the present time, in the house of their ancestor Idris. They are the leading nobility of the entire Maghrib. We shall mention them in connection with the Idrisids, if God wills. They are the descendants of Imran b. Muhammad b. al Hassan b. Yahya b b. Muhammad B. Al B. Muhammad B. Yahya B. Ibrahim B. Yahya Al-Juti. The chief of their house at this time is Muhammad B. Muhammad B. Muhammad B. Imran. To these wicked statements and erroneous beliefs one may add the accusations that weak-minded jurists in the Maghreb leveled against the Imam al-Mahdi, the head of the Armahad dynasty, he was accused of deceit and insincerity when he insisted upon the true oneness of God and when he complained about the unjust people before his time. All his claims in this respect were declared to be false, even down to his descent from the family of Muhammad, which his Ahmad followers accept. Deep down in their hearts it was envy Ol Mahdi's success that led the jurists to declare him a liar. In their self-deception, They thought that they could compete with him in religious scholarship, juridical decisions and religion. He then turned out to be superior to them. His opinion was accepted, what he said was listened to, and he gained a following. They envied this success of his and tried to lessen his influence by attacking his dogmas and declaring his claims to be false. Furthermore, they were used to receive from Almadi's enemies, the Lentina kings, the Amoravids, a respect and an honor they received from no one else because of the simple religion, of the Amoravids. Under the Luntjana dynasty, religious scholars held a position of respect and were appointed to the council, everybody according to his influence among his people in his respective village. The scholars, therefore, became partisans, of the Amoravids, and enemies of their enemies. They tried to take revenge on Almadi for his opposition to them, his censure of them, and his struggle against them. This was the result of their partisanship for the Lumchina and their bias in favor of the Lumchina dynasty. Olmadi's position was different from theirs, he did not share their beliefs. What else could be expected of a man who criticized the attitude of the ruling dynasty as he did and was opposed in his efforts by its jurists? He called his people to a holy war against them, he uprooted the dynasty and turned it upside down, despite its great strength, its tremendous power, and the strong force of its allies and its militia. Followers of his killed in the struggle were innumerable, they had sworn allegiance to him until death, they had protected him from death with their own lives, they had sought nearness to God by sacrificing themselves for the victory of the Madis cause as partisans of the enterprise that eventually gained the upper hand and replaced the dynasties on both shores. Almadi himself remained always frugal, retiring, patient in tribulation, and very little concerned with the world to the last. He died without fortune or worldly possessions. He did not even have children, as everybody desires but as one often is deceived in desiring. I should like to know what he could have hoped to obtain by this way of life were it not, to look upon, the face of God, for he did not acquire worldly fortune of any kind during his lifetime. Moreover, if his intention had not been good, he would not have been successful, and his propaganda would not have spread. This is how God formerly proceeded with His servants. The jurists' disavowal of Almadi's descent from Muhammad's family is not backed up by any proof. Were it established that he himself claimed such descent, his claim could not be disproved, because people are to be believed regarding the descent they claim for themselves. It might be said that leadership over a people is vested only in men of their own skin. This is correct, as will be mentioned in the first chapter of this book but al exercised leadership over all the Masmuda. They agreed to follow him and be guided by him and his Haga group, and, eventually, God gave complete success to his propaganda. In this connection, it must be realized that al power did not depend exclusively on his Fatima descent, and the people did not follow him on that account, only. They followed him because of their Haga-Masmuda group feeling and because of his share in that group feeling which was firmly rooted in him. Al Mahdi's, Fatimid descent had become obscured and knowledge of it had disappeared from among the people, although it had remained alive in him and his family through family tradition. His original, Fatimid, descent had, in a way, been sloughed off, and he had put on the skin of the Haga Masmuda and thus appeared as one of their skin. The fact that he was originally of Fatimid descent did not harm him with regard to his group feeling, since it was not known to the members of the group. Things like that happen frequently once one's original descent has become obscured. One might compare, with the above, the story of Arfaja and Jarrah concerning the leadership of the Bajila. Afaja had belonged to the Asda but had put on the skin of the Bajila so successfully that he was able to wrangle with Jarrah over the leadership before Umar, as has been reported. This example makes one understand what the truth is like God is the guide to that which is correct. Lengthy discussion of these mistakes has taken us rather far from the purpose of this work. However, many competent persons and expert historians slipped in connection with such stories and assertions, and they stuck in their minds. Many weak-minded and uncritical persons learned these things from them, and even, the competent historians, themselves accepted them without critical investigation, and thus, strange stories, crept into their material. In consequence, historiography became nonsensical and confused, and its students fumbled around. Historiography came to be considered a domain of the common people, therefore, today, the scholar in this field needs to know the principles of politics, the true nature of existent things, and the differences among nations, places, and periods with regard to ways of life, character qualities, customs, sects, schools, and everything else. He further needs a comprehensive knowledge of present conditions in all these respects. He must compare similarities or differences between the present and the past, or distantly located, conditions. He must know the causes of the similarities in certain cases and of the differences in others. He must be aware of the differing origins and beginnings of, different, dynasties and religious groups as well as of the reasons and incentives that brought them into being and the circumstances and history of the persons who supported them. His goal must be to have complete knowledge of the reasons for every happening, and to be acquainted with the origin of every event. Then, he must check transmitted information with the basic principles he knows. If it fulfills their requirements, it is sound. Otherwise, the historian must consider it as spurious and dispense with it. It was for this reason alone that historiography was highly considered by the ancients, so much so that at Dabari, al-Bukhari, and, before them, Ibn Ishaq and other Muslim religious scholars chose to occupy themselves with it. Most scholars, however, forgot this, the real secret of historiography, with the result that it became a stupid occupation. Ordinary people as well as scholars, who had no firm foundation of knowledge, considered it a simple matter to study and know history, to delve into it and sponge on it. Strays got into the flock, bits of shell were mixed with the nut, truth was adulterated with lies, the final outcome of things is up to God. A hidden pitfall in historiography is disregard for the fact that conditions within the nations and races change with the change of periods and the passing of days. This is a sore affliction and is deeply hidden, becoming noticeable only after a long time, so that rarely do more than a few individuals become aware of it. This is as follows. The condition of the world and of nations, their customs and sects, does not persist in the same form or in a constant manner. There are differences according to days and periods, and changes from one condition to another. This is the case with individuals, times, and cities, and, in the same manner, it happens in connection with regions and districts, periods and dynasties, This is how God formally proceeded with his servants, the old Persian nations, the Syrians, the Nabataeans, the Tubbers, the Israelites, and the Copts, all once existed. They all had their own particular institutions in respect of dynastic and territorial arrangements, their own politics, crafts, languages, technical terminologies, as well as their own ways of dealing with their fellow men and handling their cultural institutions. Their historical, Relics testify to that, they were succeeded by the later Persians, the Byzantines, and the Arabs. The old institutions changed and former customs were transformed, either into something very similar, or into something distinct and altogether different. Then, there came Islam with the Mudar dynasty. Again, all institutions underwent another change, and for the most part assumed the forms that are still familiar at the present time as the result of their transmission from one generation to the next then, the days of Arab rule were over. The early generations who had cemented Arab might and founded the realm of the Arabs, were gone. The power was seized by others, by non-Arabs like the Turks in the East, the Berbers in the West, and the European Christians in the North. With their passing, entire nations ceased to exist, and institutions and customs changed. Their glory was forgotten, and their power no longer heeded. The widely accepted reason for changes in institutions and customs is the fact that the customs of each race depend on the customs of its ruler. As the proverb says, the common people follow the religion of the ruler. When politically ambitious men overcome the ruling dynasty and seize power, they inevitably have recourse to the customs of their predecessors and adopt most of them. At the same time, they do not neglect the customs of their own race. This leads to some discrepancies between the customs of their new, ruling dynasty and the customs of the old race. The new power, in turn, is succeeded by another dynasty, and customs are further mixed with those of the new dynasty. More discrepancies come in, and the discrepancy between the new dynasty and the first one is much greater than that between the second and the first one. Gradual increase in the degree of discrepancy continues. The eventual result is an altogether distinct, set of customs and institutions. As long as there is this continued succession of different races to royal authority and government, discrepancies in customs and institutions will not cease to occur. Analogical reasoning and comparison are well known to human nature. They are not safe from error. Together with forgetfulness and negligence, they sway man from his purpose and divert him from his goal. Often, Someone who has learned a good deal of past history remains unaware of the changes that conditions have undergone. Without a moment's hesitation, he applies his knowledge, of the present, to the historical information and measures the historical information by the things he has observed with his own eyes, although the difference between the two is great. Consequently, he falls into an abyss of error. This may be illustrated by what the historians report concerning the circumstances of al-Hajjaj. They state that his father was a schoolteacher. At the present time, teaching is a craft and serves to make a living. It is a far cry from the pride of group feeling. Teachers are weak, indigent, and rootless. Many weak professional men and artisans who work for a living aspire to positions for which they are not fit but which they believe to be within their reach. They are misled by their desires, a rope which often slips from their hands and precipitates them into the abyss of ruinous perdition. They do not realize that what they desire is impossible for men like them to attain. They do not realize that they are professional men and artisans who work for a living, and they do not know that at the beginning of Islam and during the and Abbasid dynasties, teaching was something different. Scholarship, in general, was not a craft in that period. Scholarship was transmitting statements that people had heard the lawgiver, Muhammad, make. It was teaching religious matters that were not known, by way of oral transmission. Persons of noble descent and people who shared in the group feeling, of the ruling dynasty, and who directed the affairs of Islam were the ones who taught the Book of God and the Sunnah of the Prophet, and they did so, as one transmits traditions, not as one gives professional instruction. The Quran, was their scripture, revealed to the Prophet in their midst. It constituted their guidance, and Islam was their religion, and for it they fought and died. It distinguished them from the other nations and ennobled them. They wished to teach it and make it understandable to the Muslims. They were not deterred by censure coming from pride, nor were they restrained by criticism coming from arrogance. This is attested by the fact that the Prophet sent the most important of the men around him with his embassies to the Arabs, in order to teach them the norms of Islam and the religious laws he brought. He sent his ten companions and others after them on this mission. Then, Islam became firmly established and securely rooted. Far-off nations accepted Islam at the hands of the Muslims. With the passing of time, the situation of Islam changed. Many new laws were evolved from the basic texts as the result of numerous and unending developments. A fixed norm was required to keep the process free from error. Scholarship came to be a habit, for its acquisition, study was required. Thus, scholarship developed into a craft and profession. This will be mentioned in the chapter on scholarship and instruction. The men who controlled the group feeling now occupied themselves with directing the affairs of royal and governmental authority. The cultivation of scholarship was entrusted to others. Thus, scholarship became a profession that served to make a living. Men who lived in luxury and were in control of the government were too proud to do any teaching. Teaching came to be an occupation restricted to weak individuals. As a result, its practitioners came to be despised by the men who controlled the group feeling and the government. Now, Yusuf, the father of al-Hajjaj, was one of the lords and nobles of the Thaqif well known for their share in the Arab group feeling and for their rivalry with the nobility of the Quraysh. Al-Hajjaj's teaching of the Quran was not what teaching of the Quran is at this time, namely, a profession that serves to make a living. His teaching was teaching as it was practiced at the beginning of Islam and as we have just described it, another illustration of the same kind of error, is the baseless conclusion critical readers of historical works draw when they hear about the position of judges and about the leadership in war and the command of armies that judges, formerly, exercised. Their misguided thinking leads them to aspire to similar positions. They think that the office of judge at the present time is as important as it was formerly, when they hear that the father of Ibn Abi Amir, who had complete control over Hisham, and that the father of Ibn Obad, one of the rulers of Seville, were judges, they assume that they were like present-day judges. They are not aware of the change in customs that has affected the office of judge, and which will be explained by us in the chapter on the office of judge in the first book. Ibn Abi Amir and Ibn Obad belonged to Arab tribes that supported the Umayyad dynasty in Spain and represented the group feeling of the Umayyads, and it is known how important their positions were. The leadership and royal authority they attained did not derive from the rank of the judgeship as such, In the present-day sense that, the office of judge constitutes an administrative rank. In the ancient administrative organization, the office of judge was given by the dynasty and its clients to men who shared in the group feeling, of the dynasty, as is done in our age with the Vazirate in the Maghrib. One has only to consider the fact that, in those days judges, accompanied the army on its summer campaigns and were entrusted with the most important affairs, such as are entrusted only to men who can command the group feeling needed for their execution. Hearing such things, some people are misled and get the wrong idea about conditions. At the present time, weak-minded Spaniards are especially given to errors in this respect. The group feeling has been lost in their country for many years, as the result of the annihilation of the Arab dynasty in Spain and the emancipation of the Spaniards from the control of Berber group feeling. The Arab descent has been remembered, But the ability to gain power through group feeling and mutual cooperation has been lost. In fact, the Spaniards came to be like passive subjects, without any feeling for the obligation of mutual support. They were enslaved by tyranny and had become fond of humiliation, thinking that their descent, together with their share in the ruling dynasty, was the source of power and authority. Therefore, among them, Professional men and artisans are to be found pursuing power and authority and eager to obtain them. On the other hand, those who have experience with tribal conditions, group feeling, and dynasties along the western shore, and who know how superiority is achieved among nations and tribal groups, will rarely make mistakes or give erroneous interpretations in this respect. Another illustration of the same kind of error is the procedure historians follow when they mention the various dynasties and enumerate the rulers belonging to them. They mention the name of each ruler, his ancestors, his mother and father, his wives, his surname, his seal ring, his judge, doorkeeper, and wazir. In this respect, they blindly follow the tradition of the historians of the Yumaway and Abbasid dynasties without being aware of the purpose of the historians of those times. The historians of those times, wrote their histories for members of the ruling dynasty, whose children wanted to know the lives and circumstances of their ancestors, so that they might be able to follow in their steps and to do what they did, even down to such details as obtaining servants from among those who were left over from the, previous, dynasty and giving ranks and positions to the descendants of its servants and retainers. Judges, too shared in the group feeling of the dynasty and enjoyed the same importance as viziers, as we have just mentioned. Therefore, the historians of that time had to mention all these things. Later on, however, various distinct dynasties made their appearance. The time intervals became longer and longer. Historical interest now was concentrated on the rulers themselves and on the mutual relationships of the various dynasties in respect to power and predominance. The problem now was, which nations could stand up to the ruling dynasty, and which were too weak to do so. Therefore, it is pointless for an author of the present time to mention the sons and wives, the engraving on the seal ring, the surname, judge, wazir, and doorkeeper of an ancient dynasty, when he does not know the origin, descent, or circumstances of its members. Present-day authors mention all these things in mere blind imitation of former authors, they disregard the intentions of the former authors and forget to pay attention to historiography's purpose. An exception are the vizirs who were very influential and whose historical importance overshadowed that of the rulers, such vazirs as, for instance, al-Ijajaj, the band Mahalab, the Barmsides, the Banu Sol-B. Kafa al-Iqshidi, Ibn Abi Amir, and others should be mentioned. There is no objection to dealing with their lives or referring to their conditions for in importance they rank with the rulers. An additional note to end this discussion may find its place here. History refers to events that are peculiar to a particular age or race. Discussion of the general conditions of regions, races, and periods constitutes the historian's foundation. Most of his problems rest upon that foundation, and his historical information derives clarity from it. It forms the topic of special works, such as the Moj ad Dahab of al-Masudi. In this work, al-Masudi commented upon the conditions of nations and regions in the West and in the East during his period, which was, the 330s, the 940s. He mentioned their sects and customs. He described the various countries, mountains, oceans, provinces, and dynasties. He distinguished between Arabic and non-Arabic groups. His book, Thus became the basic reference work for historians, their principal source for verifying historical information. Al-Masudi was succeeded by al-Bakri who did something similar for roots and provinces, to the exclusion of everything else, because, in his time, not many transformations or great changes had occurred among the nations and races. However, at the present time that is, at the end of the 8th fourteenth century the situation in the Maghrib, as we can observe, Has taken a turn and changed entirely. The Berbers, the original population of the Maghrib, have been replaced by an influx of Arabs that began in the 5th, 11th century. The Arabs outnumbered and overpowered the Berbers, stripped them of most of their lands, and also obtained a share of those that remained in their possession. This was the situation until, in the middle of the 8th, 14th century, Civilization both in the East and the West was visited by a destructive plague which devastated nations and caused populations to vanish. It swallowed up many of the good things of civilization and wiped them out. It overtook the dynasties at the time of their senility, when they had reached the limit of their duration. It lessened their power and curtailed their influence. It weakened their authority. Their situation approached the point of annihilation and dissolution. Civilization decreased with the decrease of mankind. Cities and buildings were laid waste, roads and way signs were obliterated, settlements and mansions became empty, dynasties and tribes grew weak. The entire inhabited world changed. The East, it seems, was similarly visited, though in accordance with and in proportion to the East's more affluent civilization. It was as if the voice of existence in the world had called out for oblivion and restriction, and the world had responded to its call. God inherits the earth and whomever is upon it, when there is a general change of conditions, it is as if the entire creation had changed and the whole world been altered, as if it were a new and repeated creation, a world brought into existence anew. Therefore, there is need at this time that someone should systematically set down the situation of the world among all regions and races, as well as the customs and sectarian beliefs that have changed for their adherents, doing for this age what al-Masudi did for his This should be a model for future historians to follow. In this book of mine, I shall discuss as much of that as will be possible for me here in the Maghrib. I shall do so either explicitly or implicitly in connection with the history of the Maghrib, in conformity with my intention to restrict myself in this work to the Maghrib, the circumstances of its races and nations, and its subjects and dynasties, to the exclusion of any other region. This restriction is necessitated. By my lack of knowledge of conditions in the East and among its nations, and by the fact that second-hand information would not give the essential facts I am after, Al Masudi's extensive travels in various countries enabled him to give a complete picture, as he mentioned in his work. Nevertheless, his discussion of conditions in the Maghreb is incomplete, and he knows more than any scholar. God is the ultimate repository of all knowledge. Man is weak and deficient. Admission of one's ignorance, is a specific, religious, duty. He whom God helps, finds his way, made, easy and his efforts and quests successful. We seek God's help for the goal to which we aspire in this work. God gives guidance and help. He may be trusted. It remains for us to explain the method of transcribing non-Arabic sounds whenever they occur in this book of ours. It should be known that the letters, sounds, of speech, as will be explained later on, are modifications of sounds that come from the larynx. These modifications result from the fact that the sounds are broken up in contact with the uvula and the sides of the tongue in the throat, against the palate or the teeth, and also through contact with the lips. The sound is modified by the different ways in which such contact takes place. As a result, the letters, sounds, sound distinct. Their combination constitutes the word that expresses what is in the mind. Not all nations have the same letters, sounds, in their speech. One nation has letters, sounds, different from those of another. The letters, sounds, of the Arabs are 28, as is known. The Hebrews are found to have letters, sounds, that are not in our language. In our language, in turn, there are letters, sounds, that are not in theirs. The same applies to the European Christians, the Turks, the Berbers and other non-Arabs. In order to express their audible letters, sounds, literate Arabs chose to use conventional letters written individually separate, such as comma B, J, R, T, and so forth through all the 28 letters. When they come upon a letter, sound, for which there is no corresponding letter, sound, in their language, it is not indicated in writing and not clearly expressed. Scribes sometimes express it by means of the letter which is closest to it in our language, the one either preceding or following it. This is not a satisfactory way of indicating a letter, sound, but a complete replacement of it. Our book contains the history of the Berbers and other non-Arabs. In their names and in some of their words, we came across letters, sounds, that did not correspond with our written language and conventional orthography. Therefore. We were forced to indicate such sounds, by special signs. As we said, we did not find it satisfactory to use the letters closest to them, because in our opinion this is not a satisfactory indication. In my book, therefore, I have chosen to write such non-Arabic letters sounds, in such a way as to indicate the two letters sounds, closest to it, so that the reader may be able to pronounce it somewhere in the middle between the sounds represented by the two letters and thus reproduce it correctly. I derive this idea from the way the Qur'an scholars write sounds that are not sharply defined, such as a qir, for instance, in a surat according to caliph's reading. The s is to be pronounced somehow between s and z. In this case, they spell the word with s and write a z into it, thus, indicate a pronunciation somewhere in the middle between the two sounds. In the same way, I have indicated every letter, sound, that is to be pronounced somehow in the middle between two of our letters, sounds. The Berber K, for instance, which is pronounced midway between our clear K and J, G, or Q, as, for instance, in the name Bulagin, is spelled by me with a K with the addition of one dot from the J below, or one dot or two from the Q on top of it. This indicates that the sound is to be pronounced midway between K and J, G, or Q. This sound occurs most frequently in the Berber language. In the other cases, I have spelled each letter, sound, that is to be pronounced midway between two letters, sounds, of our language, with a similar combination of two letters. The reader will thus know that it is an intermediate sound and pronounce it accordingly. In this way, we have indicated it satisfactorily. Had we spelled it by using only one letter, sound, adjacent to it on either side, we would have changed its proper pronunciation to the pronunciation of the particular letter, sound in our own language, which we might have used, and we would have altered the way people speak. This should be known, God gives success. Preliminary Remarks The nature of civilization. Bedouin and settled life, the achievement of superiority, gainful occupations, ways of making a living, sciences, crafts, and all the other things that affect civilization the causes and reasons thereof. It should be known that history, in matter of fact, is information about human social organization, which itself is identical with world civilization. It deals with such conditions affecting the nature of civilization as, for instance, savagery and sociability, group feelings, and the different ways by which one group of human beings achieves superiority over another it deals with royal authority and the dynasties that result, in this manner, and with the various ranks that exist within them. It further deals, with the different kinds of gainful occupations and ways of making a living, with the sciences and crafts that human beings pursue as part of their activities and efforts, and with all the other institutions that originate in civilization through its very nature. Untruth naturally afflicts historical information. There are various reasons that make this unavoidable. One of them is partisanship for opinions and schools. If the soul is impartial in receiving information, it devotes to that information the share of critical investigation the information deserves, and its truth or untruth thus becomes clear. However, If the soul is infected with partisanship for a particular opinion or sect, it accepts without a moment's hesitation the information that is agreeable to it. Prejudice and partisanship obscure the critical faculty and preclude critical investigation. The result is that falsehoods are accepted and transmitted. Another reason making untruth unavoidable in historical information is reliance upon transmitters. Investigation of this subject belongs to the theological discipline of personality criticism. Another reason is unawareness of the purpose of an event. Many a transmitter does not know the real significance of his observations or of the things he has learned about orally. He transmits the information, attributing to it the significance he assumes or imagines it to have. The result is falsehood. Another reason is unfounded assumption as to the truth of a thing. This is frequent. It results mostly from reliance upon transmitters. Another reason is ignorance of how conditions conform with reality. Conditions are affected by ambiguities and artificial distortions. The informant reports the conditions as he saw them but on account of artificial distortions he himself has no true picture of them. Another reason is the fact that people as a rule approach great and high-ranking persons with praise and encomiums. They embellish conditions and spread the fame of great men. The information made public in such cases is not truthful. Human souls long for praise, and people pay great attention to this world and the positions and wealth it offers. As a rule, they feel no desire for virtue and have no special interest in virtuous people. Another reason making untruth unavoidable, and this one is more powerful than all the reasons previously mentioned is ignorance of the nature of the various conditions arising in civilization. Every event, or phenomenon, Whether, it comes into being in connection with some, essence or, as the result of an, action, must inevitably possess a nature peculiar to its essence as well as to the accidental conditions that may attach themselves to it. If the student knows the nature of events and the circumstances and requirements in the world of existence, it will help him to distinguish truth from untruth in investigating the historical information critically. This is more effective in critical investigation than any other aspect that may be brought up in connection with it. Students often happen to accept and transmit absurd information that, in turn, is believed on their authority. Al-Masudi, for instance, reports such a story about Alexander. Sea monsters prevented Alexander from building Alexandria. He took a wooden container in which a glass box was inserted, and dived in it to the bottom of the sea. There he drew pictures of the devilish monsters he saw. He then had metal effigies of these animals made and set them up opposite the place where building was going on. When the monsters came out and saw the effigies, they fled. Alexander was thus able to complete the building of Alexandria. It is a long story, made up of nonsensical elements which are absurd for various reasons. Thus, Alexander is said to have taken a glass box and braved the sea and its waves in person. Now rulers would not take such a risk. Any ruler who would attempt such a thing would work his own undoing and provoke the outbreak of revolt against himself, and he would be replaced by the people with someone else. That would be his end. People would not, even, wait one moment for him to return from the dangerous risk he is taking. Furthermore, the jinn are not known to have specific forms and effigies, They are able to take on various forms, the story of the many heads they have is intended to indicate ugliness and frightfulness, it is not meant to be taken literally, all this throws suspicion upon the story, yet, the element in it that makes the story absurd for reasons based on the facts of existence is more convincing than all the other arguments. Were one to go down deep into the water, even in a box, one would have too little air for natural breathing, because of that. One spirit would quickly become hot, such a man would lack the cold air necessary to maintain a well-balanced humor of the lung and the vital spirit, he would perish on the spot. This is the reason why people perish in hot baths when cold air is denied to them. It also is the reason why people who go down into deep wells and dungeons perish when the air there becomes hot through putrefaction, and no winds enter those places to stir the air up. Those who go down there perish immediately. This also is the reason why fish die when they leave the water, for the air is not sufficient for a fish to balance its lung. The fish is extremely hot, and the water to balance its humor is cold. The air into which the fish now comes is hot, heat thus gains power over its animal spirit, and it perishes at once. This also is the reason for sudden death and similar things. Al Masudi reports another absurd story. of the statue of the starling in Rome on a fixed day of the year. Starlings gather at that statue bringing olives from which the inhabitants of Rome get their oil. How little this has to do with the natural procedure of getting oil. Another absurd story is reported by al-Bakri. It concerns the way the so-called gate city was built. That city had a circumference of more than a 30 days journey and had 10,000 gates. Now, cities are used for security and protection, as will be mentioned such a city, however, could not be controlled and would offer no security or protection. Then, there is also al-Masudi's story of the Copper City. This is said to be a city built wholly of copper in the desert of Stilmasa which Musa B. Nusayr crossed on his raid against the Maghrib. The gates of the Copper City are said to be closed, when the person who climbs the walls of the city in order to enter it reaches the top, He claps his hand and throws himself down and never returns. All this is an absurd story. It belongs to the idle talk of storytellers. The desert of Stilmesa has been crossed by travelers and guides. They have not come across any information about such a city. All the details mentioned about it are absurd. If compared with the customary state of affairs, they contradict the natural facts that apply to the building and planning of cities. Metal exists at best in quantities sufficient for utensils and furnishings, it is clearly absurd and unlikely that there would be enough to cover a city with it, there are many similar things, only knowledge of the nature of civilization makes critical investigation of them possible, it is the best and most reliable way to investigate historical information critically and to distinguish truth and falsehood in it. It is superior to investigations that rely upon criticism of the personalities of transmitters. Such personality criticism should not be resorted to until it has been ascertained whether a specific piece of information is in itself possible, or not. If it is absurd, there is no use engaging in personality criticism. Critical scholars consider absurdity inherent in the literal meaning of historical information, or an interpretation not acceptable to the intellect, as something that makes such information suspect. Personality criticism is taken into consideration only in connection with the soundness, or lack of soundness, of Muslim religious information, because this religious information mostly concerns injunctions in accordance with which the lawgiver Muhammad enjoined Muslims to act whenever it can be presumed that the information is genuine. The way to achieve presumptive soundness is to ascertain the probity and exactness of the transmitters. On the other hand, to establish the truth and soundness of information about factual happenings, a requirement to consider is the conformity or lack of conformity of the reported information with general conditions. Therefore, it is necessary to investigate whether it is possible that the reported facts could have happened. This is more important than, and has priority over personality criticism, for the correct notion about something that ought to be on be derived only from personality criticism, while the correct notion about something that was can be derived from personality criticism, and external evidence by checking the conformity of the historical report with general conditions. If this is so, the normative method for distinguishing right from wrong in historical information on the grounds of inherent possibility or absurdity is to investigate human social organization, which is identical with civilization. We must distinguish the conditions that attach themselves to the essence of civilization as required by its very nature, the things that are accidental, to civilization, and cannot be counted on, and the things that cannot possibly attach themselves to it. If we do that, We shall have a normative method for distinguishing right from wrong and truth from falsehood in historical information by means of a logical demonstration that admits of no doubts. Then whenever we hear about certain conditions occurring in civilization, we shall know what to accept and what to declare spurious. We shall have a sound yardstick with the help of which historians may find the path of truth and correctness where their reports are concerned. Such is the purpose of this first book of our work. The subject is in a way an independent science. This science has its own peculiar object that is, human civilization and social organization. It also has its own peculiar problems, that is, explaining the conditions that attach themselves to the essence of civilization, one after the other. Thus, the situation is the same with this science as it is with any other science, whether it be a conventional or an intellectual one. It should be known that the discussion of this topic is something new, extraordinary, and highly useful. Penetrating research has shown the way to it. It does not belong to rhetoric, one of the logical disciplines, represented in Aristotle's Organon, the subject of which is convincing words by means of which the mass is inclined to accept a particular opinion or not to accept it. It is also not politics, because politics is concerned with the administration of home or city in accordance with ethical and philosophical requirements, for the purpose of directing the mass toward a behavior that will result in the preservation and permanence of the human species. The subject here is different from that of these two disciplines which, however, are often similar to it. In a way, it is an entirely original science. In fact, I have not come across a discussion along these lines by anyone. I do not know if this is because people have been unaware of it, but there is no reason to suspect them, of having been unaware of it. Perhaps they have written exhaustively on this topic, and their work did not reach us. There are many sciences, there have been numerous sages among the nations of mankind. The knowledge that has not come down to us is larger than the knowledge that has. Where are the sciences of the Persians that Umar ordered wiped out at the time of the conquest? Where are the sciences of the Chaldeans, the Syrians, and the Babylonians, and the scholarly products and results that were theirs? Where are the sciences of the Copts, their predecessors, the sciences of only one nation, the Greek, have come down to us, because they were translated through Al-Mamun's efforts. His efforts in this direction, were successful, because he had many translators at his disposal and spent much money in this connection. Of the sciences of others, nothing has come to our attention. The accidents involved in every manifestation of nature and intellect deserve study. Any topic that is understandable and real requires its own special science. In this connection, scholars seem to have been interested, mainly, in the results, of the individual sciences. As far as the subject under discussion is concerned, the result, as we have seen, is just historical information. Although the problems it raises are important, both essentially and specifically, exclusive concern for it, leads to one result only, the mere verification of historical information. This is not much, therefore, scholars might have avoided the subject, God knows better, and you are given but little knowledge. In the field under consideration here, we encounter certain problems, treated incidentally by scholars among the arguments applicable to their particular sciences, but that in object and approach are of the same type as the problems we are discussing. In connection with the arguments for prophecy, for instance, scholars mention that human beings cooperate with each other for their existence and, therefore, need men to arbitrate among them and exercise a restraining influence. Or, in the science of the principles of jurisprudence, In the chapter of Arguments for the Necessity of Languages, mention is made of the fact that people need means to express their intentions because by their very nature, cooperation and social organization are made easier by proper expressions or, in connection with the explanation that laws have their reason in the purposes they are to serve, the jurists mention that adultery confuses pedigrees and destroys the human species that murder, too. Destroys the human species, that injustice invites the destruction of civilization with the necessary consequence that the human species will be destroyed. Other similar things are stated in connection with the purposes embedded in laws. All laws are based upon the effort to preserve civilization. Therefore, the laws pay attention to the things that belong to civilization. This is obvious from our references to these problems, which are mentioned as representative of the general situation. We also find a few of the problems of the subject under discussion, treated, in scattered statements by the sages of mankind. However, they did not exhaust the subject. For instance, we have the speech of the Mobidan before Baram B. Baram in the story of the owl reported by Al-Masudi it runs, O King, the might of royal authority materializes only through the religious law, obedience toward God, and compliance with his commands and prohibitions. The religious law persists only through royal authority. Mighty royal authority is accomplished only through men. Men persist only with the help of property. The only way to property is through cultivation. The only way to cultivation is through justice. Justice is a balance set up among mankind. The Lord set it up and appointed an overseer for it, and that overseer is the ruler. There also is a statement by Anos Harwin to the same effect. Royal authority exists through the army the army through money money through taxes taxes through cultivation cultivation through justice justice through the improvement of officials the improvement of officials through the forthrightness of vazirs and the whole thing in the first place through the ruler's personal supervision of his subjects condition and his ability to educate them so that he may rule them and not they him in the book on politics that is ascribed to aristotle and has wide circulation we find a good deal about the subject which is under discussion here. The treatment, however, is not exhaustive, nor is the topic provided with all the arguments it deserves, and it is mixed with other things. In the book, the author referred to such general ideas, as we have reported on the authority of the Mubedon and Anoshawan. He arranged his statement in a remarkable circle that he discussed at length. It runs as follows, the world is a garden the fence of which is the dynasty. The dynasty is an authority through which life is given to proper behavior. Proper behavior is a policy directed by the ruler. The ruler is an institution supported by the soldiers. The soldiers are helpers who are maintained by money. Money is sustenance brought together by the subjects. The subjects are servants who are protected by justice. Justice is something familiar, and through it, the world persists. The world is a garden, and then it begins again from the beginning. These are eight sentences of political wisdom. They are connected with each other, the end of each one leading into the beginning of the next. They are held together in a circle with no definite beginning or end. The author was proud of what he had hit upon and made much of the significance of the sentences. When our discussion in the section on royal authority and dynasties has been studied and due critical attention given to it, it will be found to constitute an exhaustive, very clear, fully substantiated interpretation and detailed exposition of these sentences. We became aware of these things with God's help and without the instruction of Aristotle or the teaching of the Mabidan. The statements of Ibn al Mukaffa and the excursions on political subjects in his treatises also touch upon many of the problems of our work. However, Ibn al Mukaffa did not substantiate his statements with arguments as we have done, he merely mentioned them in passing in the flowing prose-style and eloquent verbiage of the rhetorician. Judge Abu Bakr at Tertushialso had the same idea in the Kitab Siraj al-Muluk. He divided the work into chapters that come close to the chapters and problems of our work. However, he did not achieve his aim or realize his intention. He did not exhaust the problems and did not bring clear proofs. He sets aside a special chapter for a particular problem. But then he tells a great number of stories and traditions and he reports scattered remarks by Persian sages such as Busajmire and the Mobedon, and by Indian sages, as well as material transmitted on the authority of Daniel, Hermes, and other great men. He does not verify his statements or clarify them with the help of natural arguments. The work is merely a compilation of transmitted material similar to sermons in its inspirational purpose. In a way, a Tertushi aimed at the right idea but did not hit it, he did not realize his intention or exhaust his problems. We, on the other hand, were inspired by God. He led us to a science whose truth we ruthlessly set forth. If I have succeeded in presenting the problems of this science exhaustively and in showing how it differs in its various aspects and characteristics from all other crafts, this is due to divine guidance. If, on the other hand, I have omitted some point, or if the problems of this science have got confused with something else, the task of correcting remains for the discerning critic, but the merit is mine since I cleared and marked the way. God guides with his light whomever he wants, to guide. In this book, now, we are going to explain such various aspects of civilization that affect human beings in their social organization, as royal authority, gainful occupation, sciences and crafts, all in the light of various arguments that will show the true nature of the varied knowledge of the elite and the common people, repel misgivings, and remove doubts. We say that man is distinguished from the other living beings by certain qualities peculiar to him, namely, one, the sciences and crafts which result from that ability to think which distinguishes man from the other animals and exalts him as a thinking being over all creatures. Two, the need for restraining influence and strong authority, since man, alone of all the animals, cannot exist without them. It is true, something has been said, in this connection about bees and locusts. However, if they have something similar, it comes to them through inspiration, not through thinking or reflection. 3. Man's efforts to make a living and his concern with the various ways of obtaining and acquiring the means of life. This is the result of man's need for food to keep alive and subsist, which God instilled in him, guiding him to desire and seek a livelihood. God said, he gave everything its natural characteristics, and then guided it. 4. Civilization. This means that human beings have to dwell in common and settle together in cities and hamlets for the comforts of companionship and for the satisfaction of human needs, as a result of the natural disposition of human beings toward cooperation in order to be able to make a living, as we shall explain. Civilization may be either desert, Bedouin, civilization as found in outlying regions and mountains, in hamlets, near suitable, pastures in waste regions, and on the fringes of sandy deserts. Or it may be sedentary civilization as found in cities, villages, towns, and small communities that serve the purpose of protection and fortification by means of walls. In all these different conditions, there are things that affect civilization essentially in as far as it is social organization. Consequently, The discussion in this work falls naturally under six chapter headings. 1. On human civilization in general, its various kinds, and the portion of the earth that is civilized. 2. On desert civilization, including a report on the tribes and savage nations. 3. On dynasties, the caliphate, and royal authority, including a discussion of government ranks. 4. On sedentary civilization, countries, and cities. 5. On crafts, ways of making a living, gainful occupations, and their various aspects, and 6. On the sciences, their acquisition and study, I have discussed desert civilization first, because it is prior to everything else, as will become clear later on. The discussion of, royal authority was placed before that of countries and cities for the same reason. The discussion of, ways of making a living was placed before that of the sciences, because making a living is necessary and natural, whereas the study of science is a luxury or convenience. Anything natural has precedence over luxury. I lump the crafts together with gainful occupations, because they belong to the latter in some respects as far as civilization is concerned, as will become clear later. God gives success and support. Chill books. Audiobooks with relaxing music, visuals, and subtitles to help you stay engaged.